Romans chapter 8. I want to read verse 1, and then I want us to pick up at verse 12. Romans chapter 8 in our series on sons and daughters of God. This morning we're going to look at the topic of the work of the Holy Spirit and adoption. The work of the Holy Spirit and our adoption from Romans chapter 8. Verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And go over to verse 12. Therefore, brothers, that is those that are in Christ, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or adoption. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His suffering, in order that we also may share in His glory, I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Very glorious passage of Scripture that talks about the Spirit of God and His role in adopting and assuring us as children of God. <clears throat> the reason I read verse 1 was to establish this as the, if you will, the foundation for our discussion today. This text is addressed to people who by virtue of the shed blood of Christ are free from the condemning effects of sin. The blood of Christ has been applied. And for them, not because they are sinless, but because of the blood of Christ, they are free from condemnation. So this text really begins back in verse 1 and moves forward on the groundwork of what Christ has done for us and leads then into a discussion about the glorious work of the Spirit of God in the life of every Christian. This theme of the Spirit of adoption has been mentioned in Galatians 4. We looked at that. No longer slaves, but sons. We looked at it in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 where the spirit adoption is the evidence of the Father's love that is lavished upon us and poured out upon us so freely and gloriously. Then when we come to Romans 8, we find the first time that this idea, the spirit of adoption, is mentioned in the New Testament. And you'll find numerous references to sons and daughters of God throughout the New Testament. But in Galatians 4, Ephesians 1, and Romans 8 is where you find this theme, the spirit of adoption. Okay, and what it refers to is the means by which the Spirit of God, through regeneration, takes us from being outside of God's family as sons and daughters of wrath and brings us into God's family as sons and daughters upon whom His love is lavishly poured out. Okay, as you read through Romans chapter 8, here's what you're going to find. 21 times the word Spirit is going to be mentioned. 21 times. Okay, so the... And and of those 21 times, 18 times refer to the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, a couple times they refer to the spirit of the flesh. 
But 18 times out of 21, it refers to the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. So the reason I have come to this text this morning is I would like us to spend some time looking at the ministry of the Spirit of God in the life of believers. Okay, what is the experience that we have of the Spirit in our lives as the children of God? What is it that we should expect? What is it that we should be anticipating as we come to know Him more deeply and personally? And as a ground, let me just lay out these basic truths from verses 8 and 9. And just because this kind of is important in, 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 in the prelude, if you will, to this discussion. Verse 8 says, those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, okay, so do you see it? Those who are controlled by the sinful nature can't please God. You, however, which means he's talking to two classes of individuals within the broader context of humanity. There are people that have the Spirit, and there are people that do not have the Spirit. Those that don't have the Spirit cannot please God. But verse 9 says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Okay, very, very strong. And if you will, a warning type of a statement. If there is no evidence of the Spirit of God in your life, then he is not resident there. And if he is not resident there, then I have not yet come to a place of saving faith where I am, according to verse 1, freed from the condemnation that I rightly deserve. So the foundational statements that we can make are these. Every believer, according to verse 9, has the Spirit. It is a fundamental fact of Christian living. Uh, your body, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. His presence, his presence is evidence of conversion. Every believer also is under the control and dominance of the Spirit. Okay? You, however, verse 9, he says, are, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. So, if someone is truly converted, what are they experiencing? They are experiencing an influence, an effect, measurable to some degree, of the work of the Spirit. And that work ultimately is leading towards what? Towards holiness. Okay, he is guiding and directing you gently, if you will, but strongly. Okay, that's, so he, he's internal, but he's not internal passively, he's internal actively. He is working. And then as you pick up the discussion in verse 12, Paul says, therefore, brothers. Okay, and we've talked about this. It could be brothers slash sisters, sons and daughters are referenced here. So the text is written to people who have participated in salvation by grace through faith, by the spirit of adoption, what has happened? They have been brought into the family of God. So as a result, when Paul addresses the church in Rome, what is he saying? You are brothers. You are family in God because everyone who is trusted in Christ and has been freed from condemnation has the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. Okay, now I mentioned this early on in our study. We have subjective or objective realities of conversion. The Spirit of God takes up residence. He there fights sin and makes you part of God's family. Those are objective truths that we can just claim and own. But what this text then moves into from verse 12 and following is the subjective side of our experience of the Spirit of God in our lives. And so this morning, I want us to look at this text from the perspective of evaluating what do we experience of the Spirit? What does the Spirit do for and in God's children as He aids them in the Christian walk? 
Okay, what are the, the blessings that we should be clinging to and seeking and entering into as God's children, as His sons and daughters? And the first blessing emerges out of verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. Okay, I love this. We don't have an obligation to the sinful nature. Does that mean that we are free from obligation? No. What he's saying is, if I have freed you from sin, I have also freed you into another sphere of, of obligation or responsibility. Okay, and that responsibility he then lays out. We have a responsibility, but it is not to the flesh, the sinful nature, to live according to it, the old way. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Why does the Spirit of God come? What is the work, the assistance that He brings to us as children of God? The first thing that He does according to these verses is this. He enables us to experience victory over or freedom from the bondage of sin. So the beginning of verse 12, you are not under obligation. You are no longer in that bondage. God, by His grace, through the work of His Spirit, has brought you into a new realm where you can experience freedom in Jesus Christ. That is what He comes to do for every believer. Now, the question that comes up is this. When do we as Christians experience that freeing and liberating work of the Spirit of God in relationship to sin? When is that happening in our lives? Here's the way that Paul says it. He says, if, second half of verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So when do we experience that liberating, that victorious experience over sin in our lives and ever-increasing holiness? When does that happen? It happens as we kill sin by the Spirit. And the implication that arises out of verse 13 is that we are in a cooperative relationship with the Spirit of God. We are being sensitive, sensitive to His promptings and directings in leading us towards greater holiness and greater freedom. Now, how does it happen? As we put sin to death. And I think what's happening here is this. I think Paul, at some level, is echoing the theme that Jesus Christ brings up in the Gospels. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. Okay, that taking up the cross is where I think Paul is echoing Jesus. The purpose in Rome for taking up a cross was this. A criminal would take up a cross, carried out to the place of crucifixion, and there he would be put to death. Now, what is this text telling us? This text is telling us that we are to die, to put to death. How do we do it? How do we do it? We take up our cross, which is the image of I die daily. That's what Jesus is talking about. We take our sins and we put them on the cross and they die by the Spirit in that place. They are, in a sense, put aside and rendered ineffective. Now, I think what we need to do is this. I think we need to become more specific about the things that we're putting to death. Because in verse 13, notice what Paul says. He says, if by the Spirit you crucify, and the word is strong, it's the word to mortify. If you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, what is, what is Paul saying? What we are to put on the cross is our misdeeds, which are what? Okay, our misdeeds are were sins of thought, 
There's sins of action. There's sins that can come through our eyes. Sins that can come through our mouths. Sins that can come through our hands. Sins that can come through our feet. All the places that we may go, see things, listen to things, and say things. Okay, we have to be vigilant in watching over those areas in our lives. Paul's promises that we are to put sin to death by specific confession in the power of the Spirit. It is, I think, an explanation of a clear recognition of evil as evil. That is to say, we no longer trifle or minimize sin in our lives. But we diligently, by the Spirit, seek to find it and put it out of our lives. And I love the promise that he gives us at the end of verse 13, because it's the same promise that was echoed last week in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, if you do this, put to death the misdeeds of the body, what happens? You will then live. Well, they're already alive. So what kind of life is Paul talking about? Paul's talking about life in and by the Spirit of God, where we are beginning to experience an increasing shedding of sin, a greater freedom by the Spirit that is leading us to greater joy, where we can say we are beginning to experience life and life more abundantly. So as God's sons and daughters, He fills us with His Spirit so that we can experience freedom from the old ways of life. He comes and aims to kill sin. And as He encourages us in this direction, I think of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, I die daily. What is he dying to? He's dying to those old, latent tendencies of the sinful nature or of the flesh that are expressed through the physical means of our body. And he's encouraging us to fight those things. Now, I give you this caution. We cannot stop sinning simply by mere willpower. Okay, and I think it is so important that we understand this. Stopping sinning is not simply by virtue of a decision that we make. It is a decision that we make in cooperation with the Spirit of God. And as we do that, what happens? Sin is put to death. And we then begin to experience real life. I think what that means is this. We must be willing in relationship to sin to take, we must be willing to take radical steps to deal with sin in our lives. And here again, I think Paul echoes Jesus. When he says put something to death, you know what he's saying? Remove it from you. Does that sound familiar in the words of Jesus? I'll give you a hint. He says, if your eye offends you, do what? Okay, that's not pleasant. That's radical. Okay, if your hand offends you, what do you do? He says, cut it off. And what is Jesus saying? Does he want us to go around blind? Does he want us to go around without hands? Okay? I don't think that's what he means literally, but I do think what he is at least... And it's You, you have to boil this one down and say, what, what could he possibly mean by that? This mortifying the flesh. He's saying, put it far from you and put it to death. In Romans 13 and verse 14, just listen to this passage of Scripture. Paul says... <clears throat> Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Okay? So when sin comes, what should we do? We should not even give it a second thought. We should not think about how to gratify it. If somebody said to me, I'm thinking of going on a diet and I have a couple of things 
that I wrestle with. And so the way I'm going to fight against it is I'm just going to get kind of these little aroma candles that smell like what I want. Okay? Coffee, chocolate, whatever. You, you pick what you want. This aroma candle. So in this diet, I'm going to break free from my slavery to this or that food. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to remove it from my house, but I'm going to keep reminders of it all around. Guess what's going to happen? Okay, you know what happens when you're like in the mall and you walk past Annie Ann's? Okay, that smell, of, it's sinful. Okay, what they do. It's wrong. But what are they doing? They're appealing to the desires of your flesh. Paul says, if you want to get rid of the desires of your flesh, you need to take radical steps. Deprive it of opportunity. Literally starve the temptation to death. Okay, Paul's words here are deadly serious. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Not in your own flesh you do it, but by the Spirit. Which means I have to go to God on a regular basis and say, God, this sin I can't defeat. And all of us have areas where we, we wrestle and where we struggle and sins of, I think in terms of sins of attitude rather than action, find the struggles. Go to God and say, God, I can't defeat this. The Spirit of God comes and He aids us in this mortification process as we take radical steps. So I ask you this question this morning. What habit does God aim to kill in your life? What habit does He want to root out by the Spirit who lives in you so that you're no longer enslaved? You know what the evil one wants you to think? You can't conquer this. You can't defeat this. That's the doubt of the evil one. Doubt the doubt. And believe the truth that if I walk by and in the Spirit of God, God in His mercy, not deserved, will grant us victory. Why? Folks, please understand this. Not because you deserve it. Not because there is something worthy and meritorious in you. You will defeat it by the power of the Spirit because He has redeemed you and made you His sons and daughters. This ministry of the Spirit is the ministry of adoption. It is the blessing that God pours out on His sons and daughters as we wait on earth for the greater glory that is to come. And He is fitting us and preparing us for the glorious day. So the Spirit of God enables victory over sin, or if you will, freedom from its bondage and an ever-increasing likeness and conformity to Jesus, which means that the discipline of God and the Spirit of God are working in conjunction, right? The Father in heaven disciplines us, Hebrews 12 says, so that we may share His holiness. And the Spirit of God comes to kill sin. Why? So that we may share His holiness. And the Son of God died on the cross to shed His blood to cleanse us from our sins so that we might what? Share His holiness. Folks, please understand this. Read through Romans 8 and identify over and over and over again how God, three in one, unleashes Himself in your direction to grant you success. And He does it primarily by the indwelling Spirit who applies the work of the Spirit of, the, of Jesus Christ on the cross and does the will of the Father in the heart of every Christian. You don't have an obligation to the law to fulfill it any longer if you know Christ. And if you feel enslaved, you are believing the lie of the evil one and you are not killing sin. He comes to help you. Believe Him. Trust Him. Identify the sin He wants to kill and kill it Second thing he does, verse 14. It says, because, no, just, <clears throat> if you put the death of the, the misdeeds of the body, you will live because 
those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And this is where we come, uh, are, are the sons of God leads down to the end of the next verse. He gives you the spirit of sonship. Now, what verse 14 says is very, very precious in, in, a, in a very fascinating way. It says, those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. So he he comes and enables us towards victory, and then he does this. He leads us towards victory, which is more than simply pointing it's over there somewhere. Okay, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. This is, by the way, why men don't stop and ask directions. Okay, because most directions are flawed. Okay, so if you're ever wondering why, it's because men are actually... Uh, I don't go far down that road. You understand what I'm saying, okay? It's so hard to get good directions. Okay, the Spirit of God does not generally point in a direction. He guides. He leads. When I was 16 years old, I was driving to Buffalo, New York with my dad in a 1966 Chevy pickup truck, three on the column. Okay? Straight six. Slant six. Straight six? Thank you, Dave. We got lost. We got seriously lost. And uh, we were doing one of these overnight things. Leave at 6 o'clock from the store, drive all the way to Buffalo, pick up skates in the morning from the Bauer Skate Company. And so we used to have, run a, an ice skating shop alongside of my dad's store. And so we were going to drive back all night. So we're in this truck cruising, and we had a CB radio. None of you people who are young understand what a CB radio, but everyone that's older does. Citizens Band Radio, okay? It was the precursor to the cell phone, okay? Uh, we had that in our truck. We were communicating with different people. Found out we were lost. Talking to a guy on there trying to help us get on track. Find out that we are riding behind him on the road. And he said, yeah, you are lost. And here's what he said. He didn't point in the general direction. He communicated with us and said, follow me. I want to tell you something. Pulling into a gas station and asking for directions is never for me. It's just not very comforting. I have very little faith in people to give directions at gas stations. Okay, I think sometimes it's just out of pride. They just, oh, yes, yeah, right down there, make a right, right, and a left. Why? Because they don't want to admit they don't know. Okay? This guy said, follow me. Follow me. You know what God says to us? If you want to experience the joy of the Spirit in your life, follow Him. Don't, when He calls out and says, go here, don't grieve Him. Don't quench Him. Follow Him. Because those who are the sons of God are led by the Spirit. Folks, please understand, this is the gracious provision of God that echoes something from the Old Testament. This leading. Do you remember? Psalm 23. The Spirit of God is leading. Now, that, that very God of Psalm 23 who says, I will lead you beside quiet waters. I will be with you. That same Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart. And you know what He does? He says, not there, here. Not that attitude, this attitude. Okay, fundamental to being led is listening. And then you must be responsive to the directions that are being given. A few months ago, I was riding in the car with my family. All four of us were together. And driving up a hill, and if you're close enough to me, you probably already heard this story, so forgive me. There was this big rock laying in the middle of the road. My daughter was driving. That keeps it very, very general, but protects my wife. My daughter's driving. 
And I see this rock in the middle of the road, and I said, blank, you should stop and go around. Good advice. Slows down, virtual stop, and then to my complete disbelief, keeps driving straight forward. Ba-boom. Rock through catalytic converter. Stock car, okay? Automatic car just sounded like a stock car automatically, okay? Now I want to tell you something. What I gave her was good advice, but it didn't help. You know why? Because it wasn't heated. You know why she didn't heat it? This was confessed to me over, okay, be careful. This was confessed to me recently, okay? And I think I quote this pretty clearly. I wanted to show you guys that I could drive over it. Meaning I, I thought it was lower than you thought it was. And I wanted to show you that I was right. You ever done that with God? $970 later. Okay? Don't ask me how I responded because then, well, if I tell you how I responded, you'll know whether I was or was not walking in the spirit at that moment. (laughs) Very tempting to walk in the flesh as we say, okay? But the bottom line is this, God points, but if you don't follow His lead, then you bear the consequences. You're still forgiven and redeemed, which is, for me, the mystery of this whole thing. I'm still His child. But He's going to let me destroy my life. But He will pursue and discipline to draw us back. He comes to enable holy living. He comes to lead us. That guidance of the Spirit that I believe is, as Sinclair Ferguson says, it is fundamentally that of clear-cut opposition to sin. Okay, it's that, I, I knew I shouldn't have, that's the Spirit. But I, that's the flesh. Okay, I knew I shouldn't have X, Y, or Z, but flesh. You know what Paul says? Walk in the Spirit. And you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Follow the promptings and leadings. Another way that Paul talks about it is be filled with the Spirit. What the idea is, don't be drunk with wine, Ephesians 5.16. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Surrender the control of your life to another person. That's the idea. God comes to lead us. Are you following Him? And is there an area in your life this morning where you need to go to God and say, God, I have been resisting the leading of your Spirit in my life. And in resisting the leading of the Spirit, I am resisting you. And see, folks, sometimes we just got to go to God and say, God, I just need to be honest. And say, I have not been responsive. I have been a stubborn child. I have been trying to prove that I can drive over the rock and it won't hurt me. May God show us And by that, lead us to living as we surrender to this gift of the Good Shepherd who comes alongside to lead. John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and they what? Follow me. The evidence of true conversion is that I can't consistently and persistently resist the voice of God. We follow. He leads. And what He does, He leads us in quiet pastures beside still waters. He aims to bless you, friend. 
You know what we think? I'll ignore his leading and I'll go into this and I'll find more pleasure in this sin than I will in holiness. Good luck. Good luck. The Spirit of God comes to lead us in paths of righteousness, to shape his person in us. Verse 15 through 16. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Now, what is the Spirit of God doing here? Verse 16, it goes on to say, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What is the Spirit of God? What is His task internally in your life? What does He come to, to give you the experience of? In a word, I'll say it this way. He comes to give you assurance. Assurance isn't based upon a prayer that you prayed in the past. Assurance is based upon the speaking voice of God in your heart saying, you are my son. You are my daughter. And by it, he drives out guilt. He drives out condemnation. He assures you by the Spirit that you are his. He assures us that we are the children of God which indicates and implies a couple of things. A new intimacy. Verse 15, he says this, you are no, or you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship. You know what kind of fear God is talking about here? I believe it's the opposite of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It's the fear of condemnation. The fear of getting what I deserve for my sin. That's what the law brings, right? That's the old way. Try to live by the Ten Commandments and you will find that you fundamentally fail on a regular, perhaps daily, perhaps hourly basis. The law brings fear. You know what the Spirit of God comes to do? He comes to assure you, you are God's son. You are God's daughter. And by that assurance, He aims to encourage your heart to love and know God. You have a new intimacy so that now you say, Abba, Father, that's the idea here. Okay? The Spirit of, of, of the Son comes in, and by Him we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Okay? There's a fundamental change in relationship. Do you understand this? In the Old Testament, you will never find a follower of God addressing Him as Father. Ever in the Old Testament. Abraham and Moses had a close relationship with God. You know what they called Him? The friend of God. You and I have a greater privilege in the new covenant. And that is that we are called sons of God. Daughters of God. He is our Father. And so when Jesus comes and teaches His disciples how to pray, what does He say? When you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven. Which means there is this increased intimacy and then there is this increased boldness in the sharing of our needs so that we cry out, Abba, Father, not a child in Daddy's arms being comforted, but the child who has fallen crying out for relief from pain. And it's an amazing thing to me. Somehow, kids think that you can remove their pain. You can't. What do you do? You bring them comfort. You pick them up. You coddle them. You love them. And what does it do? It distracts them from the pain. Okay, the cry here is the cry of anguish. It's the cry of pain that reaches out to God. I need your help. It is a delightful thing in the midst of our struggling circumstances to be able to utter the words, Our Father who art in heaven. 
And what does he do? Then verse 16 says this, as we cry out, what happens? The Spirit testifies with our spirit. We are God's children. God speaks through the Spirit and says, you are my daughter. You are my son. And in that, he assures us. One writer put it this way. He assures us personally, supernaturally, individually, and inscrutably. He assures us, you are my child. When, as we fight sin, as we follow His leading, He speaks into our life, You are my son. You are my daughter. I won't tell you how I responded to my daughter the other night, but I will tell you this. I love my daughters. I try by the grace of God in my response to them to not injure them and wound them. And that's how God responds to us. It is not a problem for Him when you come to Him owning your sin and pleading for grace. It is not a problem. He is not temperamental. He has never had a bad day. He loves you. And He sends His Spirit to assure you of that love so that when you sin, what do you do? You flee to Him for mercy and grace. Just like you did at the beginning when you became His child. You owned your sin. You repented of it. And what did He do? He forgave you all your unrighteousness because He loves you and wants you to experience His love in a powerful way. Are you this morning bold in coming to Him? Do you have the assurance of the work of the Spirit in your life. It is known by every believer. Sometimes it is muted by sin as we grieve and quench and silence the way to life. Folks, please understand this. In our sin, when we're not killing it and putting it to death daily, what happens? Other voices win and we don't live. That's why he says in verse 13, if by the flesh, you fight this battle, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. That Spirit comes to assure you. We used to sing a song when I was a kid. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation purchased by blood. Born of the Spirit and washed in His blood. That's the assurance that God, by His grace, seeks to speak into the life of every believer. And the last thought that I'll leave you with this morning, real quickly, is this. Verse 17. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His suffering, in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider, verse 18, Paul says, that our present sufferings are unworthy of comparison to the glory that will be revealed in us. Who is the us? Well, the creation waits, he says, in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. What does the Spirit of God do? I believe He does this. I believe He attracts us to our future home. In all of the difficult circumstances that we face in life, the Spirit of God comes to attract us 
to draw us towards the future hope. Why? Because that future hope will fundamentally affect how we respond to pain now, how we respond to temptation now. We, what do we experience? This text three times is going to say, we groan. Creation groans, we groan, and the Spirit of God groans. What is the groaning? The groaning is this longing, this expectation, this desire for better things that are yet to come. It involves at some level pain, yes. But fundamentally, this word has to do with the idea of what happens when a mom is giving birth to a child. There is serious pain, but the outcome of that pain is what draws the mom through the pain. Groaning. Why put up with it? Because the outcome of it will cause the pain to seem... Ladies, I understand, not from experience. It will cause the pain to seem, at some level, insignificant, minor. Why? Because the thing that was received through it was glorious. And that's the idea that this text begins to push. It tells us we are heirs of God and of Christ. God said to Abraham, I am your shield and I am your very great reward. The psalmist says in Psalm 73 and verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. What is Paul saying? The Spirit of God is groaning within us. And we, as a result, groan. What are we groaning for? We long for deliverance. If you've been watching the news over the last couple months, you see a world groaning naturally, physically, and in the context of humanity. Think of the unrest in Egypt, in Libya, the earthquake in Japan, absolutely devastating consequences. A tour bus accident in New York City yesterday that killed 14 people. Going out on a holiday, guess what? Creation groans and we groan. We hear these things and what happens? We have this longing. You know what the Spirit of God does? He comes alongside of us and He assures us that the better thing is yet to come. So good and so glorious that it is not worthy, He says, of even being compared to the present pain. It is a prospective longing in which we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons of God. So verse 23, He says, not only so, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, which is what? He then defines it as the redemption of our bodies. So what is Paul saying? He says, we groan now. We, in this sense, that we, every time we hear of pain, when I, when I saw about that bus accident yesterday on the internet, I thought, my heart broke for those people. 14 people snuffed out because it looks like a truck may have cut off the tail end of a bus and put it on its side and slid into a pole and chopped the top of the bus right off. But you look, you know what? You look at it and you just, the present pain, Paul says, it will not compare to the glory that one day will be revealed. Now that blows my mind. That stretches me. How that one day we will look back on Japan. We'll look back on the suffering in Libya. We'll look back on those things. And what is happening? The gospel of grace through faith applied by the Spirit of God who lives internally is informing us and showing us how to live in those circumstances where we groan and we agonize. But in the midst of it, Paul says, we are eagerly 
waiting. Here's the idea of the word. It's someone stretched up on their tiptoes, looking for a friend, looking for a family member coming down, you know, the, the, the causeway from the airport and just waiting to see. Okay, the idea is that we as Christians, because we know that the future promise of God is so glorious, that it, it draws, we're, it's eager expectation, it's that desire to get in and enjoy the blessing that is coming, that we know is coming. And as we're here in pain, what are we also doing? We're also, we're also eagerly waiting, stretching out the neck, looking for the blessing that is coming. And then verse 24, Paul says, therefore, in this hope, we wait patiently. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The idea is this, we bear up under the circumstances of this life. Why? Because we know by the Spirit who groans within us that the best is yet to come. Therefore, we wait patiently. He reminds us in a way that enables perseverance in our troubles now. Think of this. All of the effects of sin eradicated. Ultimate healing is coming. All suffering, therefore, is temporary. We wait eagerly for our adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies, which means that what we have of the Spirit today is, as he calls it here, it's first fruits. It's the first part of the harvest, but it guarantees the greater harvest. Okay, that's the picture. The inward blessing of the Spirit of God guarantees a greater and secures a greater blessing. What we look forward to as Christians is a new body, free from sin, from anger, from lust, from cancer, from heart attacks, from accidents, from paralysis, from pain, and from personal failure. That's what we look forward to. A body fitted for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness, where we will say we will ever be with the Lord. Therefore, our current losses sharpen our heavenly focus. Our losses on earth make us long for and yearn for Him and our heavenly deliverance. In the meantime, He helps us fight. He leads us in that fight. He assures us in that fight that we are His. And He attracts us to a bright, bright future by the work of the Spirit. I say to you this morning, let the future that Christ promises to every son and daughter, let it affect your life today. Carmelo, I resonate with what you said this morning. Okay, You wreck the car, you drive over a rock, you, all those things, and you just, you just get grown. Okay? What is God saying? I have secured for you something that is so good that you'll never think about that accident again. You'll never think about that cancer again. You'll never think about that loss again. It is that good and glorious. And it is kept in heaven for you. And you already have the down payment of it by the Spirit who whispers into your heart in your pain, I love you. You are mine. I have a future for you. That is right. Rejoice in your promises. And as we go into communion this morning, <clears throat> I just, First John chapter 3, I read you this verses and then I want us to go into the Lord's table this morning. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, actually. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now are we the children of God and what we will be has not yet been fully known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him 
for we will see Him as He is. What is the result? Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself, even as He is pure. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I think this is the, the, the thing that flows out of this text is, do you by the Spirit have a craving for holiness? Are you, will you let the work of Christ, past, present, and future, encourage in your heart a longing for holiness? And the reason we come to the Lord's table is to be reminded of the grace of God, that the Son of God took the consequences of our sin upon Himself on the cross and offers to us free and new life forgiveness and hope of restoration in our relationship with Him. That's what He offers to us by the Spirit. This morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, my encouragement to you today would be this. Flee to Him. Own your sin. Trust in Him. Repent of your sin. And believe that in His death on the cross, His shed blood and broken body bore the full consequence of your sin. And if you know that personally, then what you ought to do is this. If you've trusted Christ, you know this personally, then go before Him in your heart and say, God, please help me to examine my heart to see if there's anything in my life that is displeasing. And if you find something like that, confess that, give it over to God, and then come and receive the table either in the front or the back. Eat of that bread, drink of that cup. Give thanks to God for what He has done for us through His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, as we...